scripture reading this evening is from Revelation 2, verses 18 to 29. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servant into sexual immorality and the eating of food silenced to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I'll make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and will pray each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. It's the word of the Lord. If you can't tell from the reading, this is not a... uh, upbeat, positive sermon. I mean, there's talk about children dying, and um, it's a pretty intense topic. I I said last week that last week's text was one of the hardest I've ever had to preach. This might be even harder. I know at some point I need to stop saying that, but um, it was a challenge for me uh, to not only um, write this sermon, but to not have it be an hour and a half. So I think I've cut it down, so we're not going to be here an hour and a half, I promise. Um, But just a few disclaimers before we jump in. this is a sermon for believers, okay? And so if you're, if you're here and that's that not how you would describe yourself or if you're watching on the live stream and that's, that's not um, who you are, this message is an important message, but it may not be for you in that way, especially the rebuke part of this. And it's not even a message um, for believers who are um, struggling with sin, but at the same time seeking daily to repent of sin and, have, and, and seeing that as an ongoing battle. This is for those who are unrepentant, meaning the rebuke that Jesus gives is for those who have hardened their hearts and are, have an area of sin in their life where they're like, you know what, I'm just, I'm just not even worried about that. But it's an intense word for those people. Now, I've seen this text preached as a way to sort of frame gender roles in the church. This text has nothing to do with that. So if you've heard that teaching, it's bad, dismiss it. Um, That is not what is happening here. And so what I want to do is I'm going to sort of break it down section by section. Um, It's a really important word for us. Um, I think the danger that we've seen in all these churches is there is a tendency for God's people to build up a sort of caricature of God. Meaning, and I've said this before, but sort of creating God in our own image, picking and choosing the things we like about God or the ways in which we use God to get what we want or we use religion to get what we want. And this passage really challenges that, right? It challenges some of the ways we like to think about who Jesus is and how he works in life. Now, there's an author uh, and podcaster, Sky Jathani. He has a really great quote in his book, And I I related to it. He said this, my secret is that I want to be relevant and popular. I want my desires fulfilled and my pain minimized. I want a manageable relationship with an institution rather than messy relationships with real people. 
I want to be transformed into the image of Christ by showing up at entertaining events rather than through the hard work of discipline. I want to wear my faith on my sleeve and not look at the darkness in my heart. And above all, I want a controllable God. I want a divine commodity to do my will on earth as well as it is in heaven. I think the point of this passage is to challenge this assumption. And obviously this was some honest self-reflection that he was doing. I think all of us have a tendency to relate to some of these things. We want God to be safe. We want it to be easy. And the reality is it is much bigger. The main message and the main idea of the text uh, that you'll see, there's just sort of an overarching theme. And it's that no matter how much good you are doing, right? Jesus says, I see your good deeds. No matter how much good you're doing in your community, it will not cover up sin that is left in your life. Tolerating sin will not be excused by a genuine love for one another or by how much money you give to the church or by how often you do good works. Those things do not make up or atone for sin. It's a cautionary tale, but what happens then when a community tolerates sin? Now, This letter is the longest letter. It's also the harshest critique. There's very strong language used here. He's addressing uh, the church. It's in the city of Thyatira. We we talked a little bit um, last week about the church in Pergamum. This is a similar situation, but there's some some really unique differences. Um, This city was actually, it was not a famous or popular city. Okay, so where Pergamum was like the epicenter of power, this is a, is a garrison military city, meaning people would, would use it as a means to travel and to rest between moving from the big cities. And they were known for um, their guilds, okay? And really, to have any kind of economic chance at surviving in um, Thyatira, if, if, you, if you wanted to make it or have any kind of social capital, you had to join these guilds. And with these guilds, um, they would sort of control. It's kind of like a union. It would control people's employment. It it was a way in which you can make money. And each one had its own patron deity. They'd have these feasts and celebrations. And in this, there would be, uh, that's where the reference is to to eating food sacrificed by idols, because they would do that at these feasts. There would be all kinds of sexual immorality that would take place at these festivals. And it was also the city that was known for Apollo, who was the the god of the sun, um, and then Diana, who is the fertility goddess. So we've got all this going on, okay? And this is just a, an overview of what this city is. And you know that Lydia is a female who, who, who's been placed in leadership, and she's evangelizing people, and, and it says that she sells purple cloth, so she's really good at what she does. She's really successful, and people are being evangelized. It actually says that this church is growing, and she's a really big part of that. But then there's another woman he speaks about, which is Jezebel. We'll talk about what that means here in a minute. But Jesus first speaks with really intense language. Okay, he comes in hot. He says, the son of God, whose eyes are like a blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Okay, this is the only time in these churches where Jesus uses the term son of God. Okay, and if you notice, the metaphors he he uses are all fire-related. Why? Because the God of this city was Apollo, right? God of the sun. So this language is already getting after what that idolatry that existed in Thyatira. Now, we then see his commendation towards the church. It's the beginning of the compliment sandwich, right? I know your deeds, your love and faith, 
your service and perseverance, and that you're doing more than you did at first. And so we see Jesus here commend them on five things. First, he commends them on their love, right? The Greek word for this is agape. This is a sacrificial love. He says, I see that, and that is awesome. Keep doing that. You're living the way you should in that sense. The second is faith. We have love, faith. And and by faith, it's this idea there's a strong loyalty to one another. They are holding strong in the midst of a a, a really challenging season. Um, The third is service. And the Greek there actually means deacon acts. So the ways in which the deacons were meeting the needs of the community and meeting the needs of the church. He says, I see you. You're doing great. Keep it up. The fourth, he, he says, look, you're persevered in the midst of persecution. Right? This is also a space where there was tons of persecution from the emperor. And he says, you have held on to the faith. You have persevered even in the midst of it. And last, that you've increased ministry. You've had church growth, right? Which when we think about what makes a church successful, one of the things we think about is, is your church growing or is it dying? And Jesus says, look, you're doing good. Your church is growing. So you think from the beginning that what he is describing is a fairly healthy church. And yet, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. And by her teaching, she misleads my servant into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, there isn't a single scholar who reads this and thinks that the woman's name was actually Jezebel, okay? Jezebel was a name, it is sort of a callback to a, a queen in the Old Testament, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, but this was an actual woman. She just had, probably had a different name, okay? And this woman, um, what we know from this passage is that she had risen up as a leader in this church. Um, she represented something much larger than just uh, any, any kind of teacher. She was likely a prophet or claimed to be a prophet. And it was likely that she was a really gifted teacher. She was a very charismatic presence that she was able to convince so many of these people to believe things that were contrary to actual good doctrine. It was also the language that's used here says that she was seducing people into both idolatry as well as sexual immorality. So, Jesus identifies five problems here. The first, he says, you tolerate this woman, Jezebel. This is a toleration problem, okay? Um, let's take a look at uh, 1 Kings. If you, if you look at Jezebel's story, you can go from 1 Kings 16 all the way to, to uh, 2 Kings 9. Like, Jezebel's story goes all throughout the Old Testament. She was the most wicked queen. She had power from being on the throne Although Ahab, right, her husband was the king at the time. Now, Ahab was, how do you describe him? He was like wimpish, um, not very, very submissive. He just sort of sat back and whatever Queen Jezebel wanted, she got. And so he was sort of this, this sort of lame character that was sort of the figurehead while she was really calling all the shots. And what had happened is she had led the entire nation away from God and to the false god of Baal. And maybe you remember that some of those stories. I'll reference one here in a minute. But she, what she was doing essentially was she was finding prophets of Yahweh and she was murdering them. She would send assassins to kill prophets of God. She was a murderer. She was evil personified. And she was creating this priesthood to this false god, Baal. One of the interesting things we read 
in 1 Kings 16, 30, 31. It says, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of uh, Jeroboam, son of, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of Sidonians. Ooh, that was tough. And began to serve Baal and worship him. What's interesting, I, I find interesting about this, this text, is that he said he considered it trivial to commit the sins. Right? It's a trivial thing. It's no big deal. That, that essentially saying he tolerated these sins. Like it wasn't a big thing. This is just part of what it means to live in the world. This is toleration. We see this in the church, um, even, even in our modern times where the church tolerates sin. Um, and in this case, this was uh, a very big deal. So the first problem, to- the sin is being tolerated. The second problem is there is a personality pro- problem, right? Every church has personalities, okay? Some are big personalities, some are small personalities. In this church, there was a big personality problem, um, this woman in the church, okay, had a very big personality. She was able to move people away from the mission of God. She was able to sort of create a second church within a church. And she had this thing where people were actually even afraid of her. And this goes back to the original Jezebel. If you go back and look at the story, everybody was afraid of her. Her husband was, abs- Ahab was terrified of her. Um, there's one moment where Ahab wants this vineyard and all the stories of Ahab, he's always crying or sulking or complaining. He's really a, a really lame character. And he's like crying, oh, I really want this vineyard because it's cool. We could have good wine. And so then Jezebel's like, all right, fine. She goes and murders the whole family and then takes the vineyard. It's like a really horrible story. But this is the kind of fear that, and power that she had. She could take what she wanted and she would do so. Um, she was a, a decisive, ruthless, and aggressive leader. Now, one of these amazing moments, uh, if you know the story about the prophet Elijah, right, there's that amazing story where the prophets of Baal, they're sort of having like a duel, um, and there's this, there's this whole scene where they're tr- he's trying to get the prophets of Baal to make fire come down on the altar, and they can't do it, so he, he makes like a, some, you know, real cheeky jokes. He's like, well, maybe your God's using the restroom, and, you know, maybe your God just can't see what's going on, or maybe he's blind, and then he pours water all over the altar, and God sends this huge, like, thing of fire, and he wins this battle, okay? It's an epic showdown, and Elijah, it's like his biggest moment. It's like his Super Bowl, right? He just won the Super Bowl, did this amazing thing, and you'd think at this point he could gloat a little bit. But Jezebel says to him, you will die for what you've done. And instead of Elijah saying, no, I won't. You just saw what I just did. I'm going to come and get you next. Instead, he runs away. He hides. He flees. He leaves the scene. He is absolutely terrified of her. She has so much power and she invokes so much fear that the prophet Elijah just won this crazy showdown with fire. And now he is running and leaving. And he laments, I've had enough, Lord. And then God's like, well, take a nap, have some food. You'll be fine. And uh, Elijah wins in the end. But this is the point. Her personality is creating this fear. So we've got a personality problem to go along with the toleration problem. The third is an authority problem, right? She just calls herself a prophet. She just says, I'm a prophet. Listen to me. This is who I am, which is kind of a, 
I think in this story, it's a bit opposite of what we saw with the church in Ephesus, where for them, they had their doctrine good. Uh, yeah, they had their strong doctrine, but they lost their love that they had at first. I think in this church, they were lacking in their theology, right, and their good doctrine, and instead, they were all love-oriented. So the Jezebel character rises to power. Um, she has char- charisma, personality, and when we talk about prophecy, I, w- I want to be clear here. Um, there are no, uh, this isn't a gender thing. Like there are examples in the Old Testament where God raises up judges who are female as well as prophets. In the New Testament, Philip's daughter has the gift of prophecy. In fact, it says their whole household has the gift of prophecy. Um, and you see that these prophets are, I think they, that prophecy still exists as a spiritual gift today. The problem that we have here is not her gender. It's not the fact that um, she is claiming to be a prophet. It's that she is a self-proclaimed prophet, right? This isn't a God-ordained prophet. This is, she is saying, I'm a prophet, and you should believe me just because I am powerful. This happens today. Um, I don't know if you watch the news, but it wasn't too long ago that we had a very contentious presidential election. And there were pastors who were saying that God came to me in a dream, in a vision, and I am prophesying a certain candidate will win. Turns out that candidate didn't win. And so you saw many pastors having to issue these big apologies. Well, I was wrong. I was a prophet try. I didn't really get it. And so you've got all these examples where people claim, self-proclaim as prophets, but the truth is that is in their own interest. Um, there's a self-proclaimed YouTube prophet called the Third Eagle, the Apocalypse. It's a great deep dive. He's predicted the end of the world like 20 times. Is always wrong. Still thinks he knows what the end of the world is. Um, there are going to be people to the end of time who claim to be prophets who are not prophets. And that is what is happening here in this church. There was an authority problem. The fourth problem is that there's a theology problem. So what was, what was it about her teaching? What was she saying about God that was wrong? She had a bit of a Gnostic teaching that separated the spirit and separated uh, the body. Okay, so there was like the flesh and the spirit. And so the, by doing that, what she was saying is like, you can have your spirit right and your, your ideas and beliefs of God right, but you can also satisfy the desires of your flesh. And because those things are separate, right, you're good. You can give in to sexual immorality. You can eat the food sacrificed to idols. You can do all these things because your body and your flesh is separate from your spirit. The second thing that she was teaching uh, was a false view of grace, right? That um, there's no law. Now, you, you can do whatever you want, and God will forgive you no matter the cost. It was a form of legalism that said, we can go out and live in this way and gratify the flesh, and it's fine because God will forgive. It was a false understanding of grace and holiness. And lastly, there's a morality problem. In order to maintain a sense of community and livelihood in Thyatira, they would need to be a part of one of these guilds. Um, And she would twist the teachings to say, you need to participate fully in the culture's activities or else you cannot reach the lost. It's kind of like we talk about Jesus. One of the profound things about who he was is that he would have dinner with sinners 
right? He would, he would meet with them, whether it was prostitutes or tax collectors or, or whoever was seen as an outcast in society. He was a part of those communities. But there is a big difference between being with sinners and participating in sin. And what she was doing to this church was, was blurring those lines and saying, if you want to reach these people in these guilds, you need to go all in. You need to participate in the sexual immorality. You need to participate in the, in the food, all of it. And this was a problem. The truth is, God is calling all of us to holiness. And while that holiness is given to us through the grace of God, through Jesus Christ. It is still a call that we live to our entire life. Now, John Tyson wrote this in his book. He said, when the church looks like the world, you have a sick church. When the church acts like the world, you have an impotent church. And when the church plays with the world, you have an unfaithful church. And this is what was happening. Her teaching was leading people away from God, and their church was no longer resembling what it meant to be a church following Jesus. So then we have a warning, okay? This is verse 22, and this is where it gets heavy, okay? These are some intense words. Um, in verse 22, let's go back here, um, it says, by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent, of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they find a way to repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all of the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and will repay each of you according to your deeds. That is a heavy warning. There's a lot in there. And I think sometimes we have this image of Jesus as this meek, quiet, kind, gentle person, which he is all of those things. But Jesus also says things like that. There's also a fire and a tenacity and a presence in this moment. And so we have this idea of loving discipline, right? This idea that Jesus has a warning that there will be discipline. There will be something that happens if you don't repent, and so I just want to real quick break down sort of the theology of God's discipline because I think that's really helpful for us. Another word we use for this is wrath, which is kind of this big, scary word. And if I told you I was going to preach a sermon on God's wrath, you probably wouldn't have come tonight. Um, but we're going to unpack it in a way that I think helps us understand that motivation behind wrath is actually God's love. So the first is this. God's discipline we see in this passage is fair. What did he say? I have given her time to repent. So it's clear that Jesus reached out to this prophetess, right, whoever her name was, and gave her opportunities to turn away from her evil ways. He called her to repent, but she refused. It was a conscious, hardening heart that rejected God. The second is that God's discipline is full, okay? He says, I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent. And I will strike her children dead. I think the key word in that passage, and the one way I think we should sort of unpack a little bit, is that word adultery. We see this in James 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? And therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he 
jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us. Jesus is passionate and jealous for his bride. Bride is a metaphor we see often in the New Testament for the church. That God is jealous whenever our affections are moved to something other than him. He is a jealous God. He wants us back. God's wrath is not a lashing out. It's not Zeus striking people with lightning every time they make a mistake. It is nothing like that. It is this, and this is maybe a way to sort of define it. If that's what you want, you can have it. It's almost as if God is saying, look, if that's the thing you want the most, I'll let you have it, and in the end, it will lead to death. Um, I'm in a fun age with my daughter. She's nine months, crawling everywhere, trying to walk, trying to stand. But the one thing that drives us nuts as parents is she loves to put everything in her mouth. And there, we have two boys. They're messy. Um, there's stuff everywhere. They're always dropping food and toy cars and all kinds of things. And there will be times where I will see her take something off the floor, right, maybe like a marble or something and stick it in her mouth. And immediately, right, I run and I take my pinky finger and I swipe it and get it out of there. And in that moment, she hates me, right? She wanted to put the marble in her mouth. But as her dad, I'm like, no, you could choke. That could kill you. There is a loving way with parents when we discipline our children. We don't do it out of anger or to hurt or to harm, but it's actually done out of protection, safety, because we know what they need. God's wrath is similar in the sense that it is used often in a sense and in a way to bring us back because ultimately he knows what will happen if we continue down these paths. Number three, God's discipline is final. He says, I will strike your children dead. That is maybe the most terrifying thing of this whole passage. And I think what is he's trying to invoke in this, I think the, the point of him using such strong language is that when you think about it, I think as a parent, I would do anything, right, to protect my children. Even if it meant putting my own life in harm's way, I will do anything in my power to help them. And so Jesus is saying this with such a great urgency. He's saying, do you want the children to be struck dead? This matters so much. And he's calling them to act with urgency. He wants to protect the church. And lastly, God's discipline is to be feared. He says at the end, then all the churches will know, I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. This fear, right, we talk about the fear of the Lord, is in a sense a, a healthy respect, a, a, an understanding that God is so inexhaustible and so uh, a loving and so huge and massive that there is a sense of wonder and fear in how we approach him. But it's also a sign of love. If you, if you ever talk to someone who grew up in a, in a home where the parents were gone all the time and um, maybe there was some neglect there. You rarely hear them reflect back and say, you know, it was great. I had all this freedom. I could do whatever I wanted. It really was the best childhood. Now, if you grew up in a strict home, that's probably what you would have wanted more of. But for those who grew up in those kinds of homes, that, that's, not, that's not their reflection. Typically, it's, where were you? I needed you. I needed structure. I needed discipline. 
And Jesus is not neglecting his church. Instead, he is ever-present. He sees when the church begins to drift, and he says, if you don't change, you will inevitably die. We see this played out um, in Hebrews 12, 7 through 11. It says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while while they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may, we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and a peace for those who have been trained by it. So then, we have this theology of discipline, that Jesus is calling his church to discipline. And he turns the corner and he dresses those who are faithful. He says to them, Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold her teaching. So there are those in the church who have said, no, we're not going to listen to this woman. We are going to hold fast to the truth of God. To you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on what you have until I come. Jesus implores them one last time, Hold on. Hold fast. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be a challenge, but do not give up. It may not be popular, right? It may not gain you social currency in the guilds. You may not fit in with the rest of the people and your peers. You may stick out or be awkward or weird, but hold fast to what you have. Uh, Bonhoeffer writes in his book, um, The Cost of Discipleship, he writes, the messengers of Jesus will be hated to the end of time. They will be blamed for all the division which rends, rends cities and homes. Jesus and his disciples will be condemned on all sides for undermining family life and for leading the nation astray. They will be called crazy fanatics and disturbers of the peace. The disciples will be sorely tempted to, the, to desert their Lord, but the end is also near. And they must hold on and persevere until it comes. Only he will be blessed who remains loyal to Jesus and his word until the end. Now, this was obviously written in response to the rise of the Third Reich. As things in the world were rapidly changing, there was a sense of urgency, knowing the danger of what was about to happen. But Jesus is writing with what I would say is a very similar urgency to hold fast in times to come. And then finally, in verse 26, we have the promise. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever of ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus says, there will be a, you will have authority and power over all the nations. He is saying, if you want to rule with me in the future, you need to be faithful in the present. Whatever comes, whatever is coming, be faithful. Now, 
this is a hard word, but it's also a hopeful word. And so I'm going to close just by simply um, acknowledging kind of what, what does this mean for us? Right? You just preached for 30 minutes on all this. What does any of this mean for us today? Because obviously, I don't think we have a Jezebel in our midst. I don't think that people are being led to these guilds. Like, what does this mean? I think the easiest way to sort of bring it home is that I think all of us need to reject and identify worldliness. The sin of worldliness is falling in love with the things of this temporal life. It's blindly following the views and the practices of society around us without discerning if they are biblical. Whether it's our private lives, sex, money, power, what we do with our resources. I think oftentimes one of the places we're most tempted in these things is in the workplace. Whether it's maybe a, a means to compromise on our morality to sort of move up in the world to justify sin, to, to do things or say things um, in order to move forward. And, and often that is a place where I think people are tempted. But it's also in our private life, what people don't see. We project an image of ourselves, and, and whether that's on social media, whether that's just for our friends or our, our church community, we sort of look a certain way. But ultimately, how are we when no one is watching? I'm going to ask a couple questions. The first is this. As I've been speaking, has the Holy Spirit convicted you of maybe a sin you've tolerated in your private life or at the workplace? I know as I was preparing this sermon, there were certain things that I felt the Lord was saying to me, calling me out, right, reading me and, and, and sort of looking and saying, hey, you, you need to repent. And here's what we often do. We sort of compartmentalize things, right? We say, I have my faith here in this box Right? And this is, this is a part of my identity. It's, it's why I go to church every week. It's why I, I, I do some of the things that I do. But then I also have my life. And so when we have these things, these, these things that we tolerate in our life, it's sort of almost as if we have a split in our mind. It's a, it's a psychological term where we sort of uh, have two personalities. We have one that is sacred and one that is secular. We have one that is in the world and one that we say is of God. But a compartmentalized faith is a faith ultimately that will destruct. And so maybe here's the harder question that we can reflect on. Is there an area of sin that maybe you've been convicted of, but you simply refuse to repent of it because you love it too much? These are the things that have become idols in our hearts that oftentimes will harden our hearts in the long run. And I promise it will not end well. This is where Jesus' warning comes to you and me. What are the things in our heart that we cling to, that we know we need to let go? Do not believe the lie of the enemy. Because here's the good news. There is unlimited grace. There is unlimited mercy and forgiveness for those who come to Jesus. This warning for the church is one out of love. It wasn't one out of anger and, and, and just pure hatred. It was one because he cared for them. Now, if you study church history, this really is a cautionary tale because this church, church in Thyatira, um, God removed the lampstand. It wasn't a few hundred years later when a new prophet came along. This time it was a male. And he led um, them to believe a new theology called mona uh, monetism, which essentially was that he, this guy had better teachings than the apostles and it was a twisting on the scripture and on the gospel and ultimately it led to the death of this church. They got this warning 
and they ignored it. They looked at their idolatry and essentially said, you know what? I'd rather have this. And ultimately, it's what led to their death. Jesus is giving us this call to repentance out of his kindness because he loves us and he wants to see a future with him. And so our prayer tonight, I would say a prayer for us is to God, soften our hearts. The ways we've been hardened, soften, melt those places in our life. One of the marks of our, we have on the, on the board out there in the lobby are marks of discipleship. And one of those marks is that we desire Jesus more than sin. And maybe the prayer some of us need to pray tonight is, God, I wish that was me. I wish I desired Jesus more than sin, but right now I don't. Please break my heart, soften my heart towards you. Let's pray. Lord, you call us all to repentance. You call us to be honest before you. And so right now, Lord, we take off any, any mask, anything we pretend, and we just say, look, here I am. This is me. And we ask that you would do a refining work, that you would continue to uh, chisel away at the places that have been hardened in our hearts, the ways in which we've held idols in our life, the ways in which you have not become the most important thing. Help us to see those, that we wouldn't feel this, this, this need to perform or pretend like we've got it figured out, but rather, God, that we would, in, in, in humility, submit these things to you, asking that you would do only what you can do. So, Lord, we ask for forgiveness. We ask for new life. We thank you for all that you are. It's in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.